Father God, uh, we come before you just really humbled. What we're about to open up and see is um, pretty devastating, um, trying to understand it and get a grasp of what your future plan is. Um, well, your glory is meant to be revealed through this book. Um, we do see some destruction and chaos beforehand. And uh, God, help us to just see you through all of that um, and just know that we, we love you. God, bring yourself to this study today. Um, we just want your spirit to be in each of us through the teaching, through the questions and the time together, um, and that we can just feel closer to you, know you more, know more about you and your plan. And uh, let's get to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we went through, over the last couple of weeks, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And uh, like I mentioned uh, in the very first week, um, Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 is um, Jesus telling John to write down the things that he saw, the things which are, and what will happen after these things. And the phrase after these things in Greek is the phrase meta tauta. And as you see, that's actually the outline to the book of Revelation. The first chapter are, is the vision of Christ. It's the things that John saw. The second and third chapter are the things which are the seven churches that Jesus was having John scribe letters to. And then the fourth chapter starts with the phrase meta tauta. So we know at the beginning of the fourth chapter, we are taken into future events, and God is unfolding his plan for us. Uh, we saw John in heaven and what was going on in the throne room of heaven in chapters four and five. Jesus has the scroll. He is the one worthy to take the scroll, and this is the title deed to the earth, and now he's opening the scroll. And with each seal that holds the scroll closed, as it gets opened, judgment pours out on the earth. And that is where we're headed into. Revelation chapter 6 through 18 is God's final judgment on the earth before Christ's return. Uh, it is future events. So with that, I just want to take a second and recognize, just a little, have a little bit of reverence of goodness, what John is opening us up to. Um, because if, if Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and our interpretation of that is correct, then the rapture of the church happens before chapters 6 through 18. So this is stuff that if, if my relationship with Christ is real and is pure, then I'm not going to see this if it goes down in my lifetime because I'll have been raptured and I'll be seeing it from heaven. So what is the deal? What is this written for? And I think that that's a good question that we need to answer because we sometimes, especially in, in modern day church, have looked at scripture and looked at the Bible as though it's really written for us as a guide to live our lives, um, which is, tr part of that is true, right? There's definitely application 
there's definitely, you know, the law is there to teach us what is morally right and wrong. God's authority to show us what is right and wrong. There's certainly stories that we can relate to and have application of that show us what it means to live life. Solomon wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and really gave us some wisdom on life and to understand it. So part of that is true, but the Bible itself, that's not the main theme. That's not the main story. What it really is, is God revealing himself to man. And this book, in particular, is named Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what we see for the rest of the book is Jesus fulfilling the rest of the Old Testament prophecies. He's fulfilling everything that the old rabbis associated to Mashiach ben David, and which is the Messiah, son of David, the, the conquering warrior. And so this is the full revealing of God's plan and the rest of what the Messiah is meant to do and God's plan for Israel through it. And if you want a, a secondary picture of some of this, Romans chapter 9 through 11 is sort of Paul's outcry about the fact that God is going to deal with Israel and save Israel. And this is kind of the rest of what Revelation is about. Now, the Old Testament has been pointing us, and Jesus was pointing us, to this time frame on his earthly ministry as well. Just to give you a few scriptural examples, um, the, the book of Joel, the minor prophet Joel, um, chapters 1, 2, and 3, really all through the book of Joel, you see the phrase, the day of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 1, um, Isaiah 13, Amos chapter 5, Isaiah 31, you constantly see this phrase, the day of the Lord. This is the time period that we're about to look into. It has another name in Jeremiah chapter 30. It's referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of Israel's trouble. So we know that Israel's going to be going through quite a lot during this, this time frame. And we know that it's a seven-year period because of Daniel chapter 9. So before we even dig into Revelation, I want to break down a little bit of what we see in Daniel. So I put a little marker here. Let's see if I can open up to it. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 says this. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. After 62 weeks, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. 
and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood, and the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So let me break this down for you. There was, well, there is this book. Um, sorry for those who are listening, you can't see it, but here's a, <laughs> this is the book, um, The Coming Prince. It was written by Sir Robert Anderson. He was a Presbyterian theologian, but also a Scotland Yard investigator. And he decided to take some of his investigative skills and apply them to scripture. And he wanted to see how accurate and how clear the Bible makes Jesus the Messiah. And this is what he found out. He looked in specifically to those three verses I just pointed out. So this is what we've got. This, this book was written in 538 BC. Okay? It predicts that at some point there will be a decree made to rebuild Jerusalem and its wall. That happens on March 14th, 445 BC, King Artaxerxes allows Nehemiah to go rebuild Jerusalem and its wall. So already one prediction has come true. And then he says, from that point forward, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now the weeks refer to an agricultural week or a seven year period. The Jews were supposed to, every seventh year, let the land rest and not produce crops and not farm the land. And for 490 years, they didn't do that. They kept producing crops every single year, even on the Sabbath years of their agriculture. And Jeremiah points this out in his books. And he tells them that they're going to be exiled from the land for 70 years. Why 70 years? Because 70 years is all of the Sabbath years added up that they didn't let the land rest. So they were booted out of Israel for the amount of time they should have been letting the land rest. And so that term in relation to their exile, and Daniel is preaching and prophesying during the exile, you would understand that the weeks are talking about an agricultural week and a seven-year period. So you've got seven weeks and then 62 weeks, or 69 seven-year periods, and it says the Messiah will come and he shall be cut off, and this is about the end of transgression or the end of sin. So from the date, March 14th, 445 BC, you're looking for a 483-year period that's 69 seven-year periods. It's 483 years. Now, Sir Robert Anderson understood that a biblical prophetic year is 360 days. That was the Babylonian calendar. That was the calendar that the Jews used. So he actually calculated the days. It's 173,880 days. And he calculated them from March 14th, 445 BC, when the decree was made to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, 
and he counted 173,880 days. And that day was April 6th, 32 AD, what we know as Palm Sunday, the very original Palm Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, the beginning of Passion Week before he goes to be crucified. And so he said, ha ha, see how accurate the scripture is. And it's so precise in foretelling who the Messiah is. Jesus is the Messiah. But then, so we have 483 years and Jesus shows up, but then there's a 70th week. This is the other name for the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven-year period. And he says that a covenant will be made for this time frame. And in the midst of that week, in the middle of it, you'll see the abomination which causes desolation. Now, Jesus refers to this in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. He tells us the world is going to see great tribulation like it has never seen before or will ever see again. And he mentions the abomination of desolation. This is an event that the Jews had already referred to. They thought they had seen a glimpse of what this picture was. So they had seen a foreshadowing of the ultimate abomination of desolation. In the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, when Alexander the Great died, he broke his kingdom up. Well, his kingdom got broken up into four different sections. And the section that contained the Jewish people was taken over uh, and eventually came down to the Antiochus line. And so there was Antiochus I, Antiochus II, Antiochus III, and Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was the worst. He named himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which really was a reference to the fact that he believed he was a god on earth. And so Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to, well, what he did was he set up a statue of Zeus in the holy temple of the Jews. But the face of Zeus was Antiochus's face. And he slaughtered a pig on the brazen altar, which if you know anything about Judaism is not kosher, um, not okay. And he tried to rule the Jews and force the end of their worship. So it was a very clear picture of a future event. And Jesus is referring to a past event, something that was claimed to be future by Daniel, and saying that the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy is still to come. There will be someone in the middle of this week, or the tribulation, who will perform an abomination which causes desolation. So this is the time period we're walking into. You can call it the 70th week of Daniel. You can call it the tribulation. You can call it the time of Jacob's trouble or you can call it the day of the Lord, but whatever you want to call it, the Old Testament has been pointing us to it for a long time, and we see our greatest description of this time frame in Revelation. So, before, one more quick thing before I go there, is there is a serious gap of time between the 69th week and the 70th week that Daniel provides. And so do we see another glimpse of that to understand this gap? Why is there this gap is there any notion that there should be a gap between these two periods? Well, one last thing. 
Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. These are the verses that Jesus quoted and read from the scroll when he basically announced himself in the temple. So he read this to the people in the synagogue. He said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, or in other versions, the year of the Lord's favor, comma. That's where Jesus stops quoting this verse. And in Luke 14, or Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, he stops at that comma, and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled before you. But he leaves off the rest of the verse that happens after the comma, which is a reference to the day of the Lord. Because after that comma, it says, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus doesn't finish the sentence when he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled. And then later in his earthly ministry, he talks about the great tribulation in the future. So we know that there's a gap between the 69th and the 70th week. And this is what we're going to see in Revelation 6 through 18. So let's open it up. Revelation chapter 6. Jesus is about to open the scroll. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures um, saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So the first seal is a rider on a white horse wearing a crown and carrying a bow. There's even some commentators who think that this is a picture of Jesus. It's not. This is a picture of the false messiah, of the antichrist, of the man of sin, the son of perdition, whatever you want to call him. He has plenty of names in scripture. The beast, this is the antichrist. This is the false messiah. How do we know he is the false messiah? First, he's carrying a bow. The picture of Christ in Revelation chapter 1, he had a sword. In Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, he has a sword coming out of his mouth. He has a sword, not a bow. But here's the biggest piece, and this is the problem in why commentators sometimes get this wrong, because they read it in only English. The word crown here is Stephanos, and Stephanos is the type of crown that an athlete would get at the end of a competition. It was a victor's crown, like a wreath. It did not represent royalty, so it was a lesser crown. It wasn't the real thing. In Revelation 19, when you see Jesus coming back, he has a, uh, a bunch of crowns, and the word there, and in, Reve and in Revelation chapter 4, the crowns that the church is wearing in heaven is diadema, or a diadem, a royal crown that's made of precious metals and jewels. It's different. It's the real thing. It comes from heaven. So this crown is a lesser crown. It's not the real crown. 
Now, there are some who point out that uh, he has a bow, but the, the scripture doesn't mention arrows. So potentially this means that whoever this man is, whoever this rider is, comes um, carrying a big stick, like Teddy Roosevelt had said, but he maneuvers through peace. He doesn't actually make war. Um, I don't know that I necessarily dig that interpretation. I think when I read bow, I think of arrows. I just think it's sort of implied. But, you know, I have a professor that I highly respect who points that out and says that, you know, without arrows, uh, it's, it's pointing to his diplomacy, that this is going to be a master peacemaker with diplomacy. You can take that however you want, but ultimately the point is the first seal is the Antichrist. He is the false messiah presenting himself to the world. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about what Paul said in, in uh, Thessalonians, in his letter to the, in the letter, second letter to the Thessalonians, about how that which is holding the man of lawlessness or the spirit of lawlessness back has to be removed before he can be revealed. And that is likely the Holy Spirit. The church must be removed. Church is the home of the Holy Spirit. He's, once that's removed, he can reveal himself to the world. So that is the first seal to be opened. So the church should be gone by the time the Antichrist is revealed. So that's the first seal. Second seal. When he opened the scroll, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another. And there was given to them a great sword. So even though this false messiah comes on the scene and there's diplomacy and peace and everything seems hunky-dory, eventually this breaks down because he's not the real thing. And war breaks out throughout the earth. So the red rider is war. And then there's the third seal. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse, he who sat on it, had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. So what's happening is they're measuring out the black horse, black rider with a scale. He's measuring out basically enough food and enough very cheap food normally to take care of a family for a day's wage. And, they're, and it's basically saying these items that used to be very cheap and highly accessible are now luxuries because there's famine. So war, large-scale world war, would bring famine. This is a natural occurrence of events. There are a lot of commentators who think that the first four, the first four seals of the scroll are an overview of the tribulation period. The false Christ comes, the false Messiah, and then in, at some point war breaks out, and from that famine, and then from that the next horse, which is death. Starting in verse 7, when he opened the mouth, or when he opened the fourth seal, 
I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with the death, and by the beasts of the earth. So that's a pretty rough scene. War, famine, death, sort of the big overarching themes of what you're going to see over the next seven years. And then the fifth seal was opened. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it said to them, and it was said to them, they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So this is, this is very interesting. So you have this whole group of people, just death. You're looking at this scene of death, but they're specifically people who were killed for their faith in Jesus. And they're crying out to God during the tribulation period, how much longer do we have to wait here in death? And he says, you have to wait a little longer until this is completed. So who are these people? So this is one of the things, this is one of the verses that has led some to believe that the rapture happens towards the end of the tribulation period because they think that this is the church. Um, I tend to disagree with that for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus told Peter when he said, I will, he named him from Simon and named him Peter. And he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the next thing he said is, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, if this was the church, then Jesus would have been lying because it, they're clearly prevailing against the church if this was the church. But this is not the church. The church, as you saw in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, is in heaven. So these are people who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. And we're going to see a bit of a picture of that in the next chapter. So I just want to get, give you a heads up that as we get into chapter 7, remember this because you'll see that picture there. It's also, remember when Jesus said to the church of Philadelphia, would I have shut? No one can open. Would I have opened? No one can shut. And if the rapture is him sealing, shutting the door to heaven, these guys are stuck on earth until Jesus returns. And they will be resurrected for the millennial kingdom. Uh, and we'll be able to go to the new heaven and new earth, but we'll not get to experience this heaven. Um, but they will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. So the sixth seal, verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth 
as a fig tree drops its late figs, when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. So this is insane. There's earthquakes. Probably the black ash would be likely volcanic volcanic ash going into the sky. When that happens, legitimately, the moon does look red when you're looking at it through ash, uh, and it turns to blood, and the sky is just rolling up in that ash, right? And now, it has become so apparent that God's judgment, that the wrath of the Lamb is falling on earth, that even those powerful people are hiding from him. This is actually a really interesting picture um, that we saw a foreshadowing of in the book of Joshua. As the Israelites were marching on their enemies, um, as people saw that God was with the Israelites, some of the leaders hid in caves and, and caverns. And you see that in the book of Joshua as sort of a foreshadowing to this ultimate revelation of when the wrath of the Lamb really comes. Most interesting about that is Joshua and Jesus share a name. It's just transliterated differently. Yehoshua or Yeshua from Hebrew is translated into Joshua, but Yeshua from Aramaic is translated into English as Jesus. But they share the same, same name. You see the picture of this great conqueror, Joshua, in the book of Joshua, and God is with him and people are hiding out as he's coming. And then you see an even greater picture of that in Revelation, the ultimate Joshua, Jesus, and his wrath and even the great powers of the earth are hiding from him as they know that the wrath is coming from him. So we've gone through six of the seven seals. The seventh seal we won't get to tonight. The seventh seal we'll get to next week. But the seventh seal contains within it seven different judgments called the seven trumpet judgments, which also is a picture from the book of Joshua as they were surrounding Jericho at the last day they marched around the city seven times and they blew seven trumpets. Seven trumpet judgments are coming with the seventh seal as the walls come tumbling down. But this is the good news and why I wanted to get through two chapters today because this stuff, it's heavy. But there's some good news. There's a little light. There's a little, little light in between this picture and the seventh seal. God gives us a little hope as we open up the seventh chapter. And this happens at the end of each of the judgments. When you get to the seventh trumpet judgment, the same thing will happen. You get to the end of the seven bowl judgment, the same thing will happen. We'll see that as we get into the future. This is a pattern that God has set up and gives us a little glimpse of hope. In chapter seven, before we open the seventh seal, we move from the judgments into a picture of what God is doing on earth. It says, after these things, Metatauta, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, north, west, south, and east, 
holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea, or the trees will have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So God is going to put a seal on some people on their foreheads. Okay, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000. All of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, you guessed it, 12,000 were sealed. The, of the tribe of Sibion, again, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. So of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 members from each of those tribes were sealed on the forehead with a seal of God, and they'll be protected through this tribulation period. I bring this up because we miss this a lot of times in the book of Revelation because people like to talk about conspiracy theories and weird stuff and sort of the darker parts of Revelation. You probably heard of the mark of the beast. That comes up later in Revelation. I just want to say how interesting it is that the enemy, that Lucifer, has no original ideas. He is not very good at anything. God came up with the idea of sealing the foreheads of these 144,000 first. Lucifer creates a counterfeit seal that we'll come and deal with later on. But just pointing out that God is the originator and the creator. All Satan can do is twist what God has created. So just to mention that. But what you see here, 12,000 members from 12 tribes of Israel are sealed by God. And they're going to be protected through the tribulation period by this seal that God has placed on them. And what happens because of it? Verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So these 144,000 members of the Jewish nation are sealed. They're protected through the tribulation by God, the seal that he places on their forehead. The result of, the, of their ministry, of these members of the Jewish nation becoming Messianic Jews and proclaiming the gospel during the tribulation period, a great multitude that John can't even count from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, comes to know Jesus. There are some who think there might actually be more people who get saved because of this section of Revelation during the tribulation period, then get saved before it. 
because of the ministry of the 144,000. And then later we'll see the ministry of the two witnesses. I'm not going to get into that tonight, but it's very interesting. And then also an angel who's proclaiming the gospel to all the people of the earth. But their ministry provides a multitude which no one could number of people who get saved. And then you see, separate from this multitude of people who get saved, the elders bowing down and worshiping God. The 24 elders, the church in heaven, is recognizing what is happening on earth to the people who are getting saved during the tribulation period. So this is hope. This is good news. Even though this is a rough period in history, the gospel is still going to get preached and people are still going to get to know Jesus and experience the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, and ultimately the new heaven and new earth. So there's still good news in the midst of this chaos. And it's really good news. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? So one of the elders is asking this question. So one of the members of the church in heaven is saying, who, well, John is asking the question. One of the elders is saying, I said to him, sir, you know. So let me backtrack. The elders are asking the question. John is giving the answer. I said to him, sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So you see this picture. John's confused. I'm going to get it right this time. John's confused. Who are these people? One of the elders says, you know. You know who this is. These are the believers who come out of the great tribulation. They have dipped their robes in the blood of Jesus, and they've come out white. And because of that, those of us who sit on the throne in heaven will dwell with them on earth when it's time. And that's the picture we get here in chapter 7. So we get this break before the seventh seal. And we see this great picture of what is going to be happening. While God is opening up his wrath, while these judgments are happening, he has set aside 144,000 ministers to do his work. And because of their work, a multitude that nobody could count gets saved. And their robes are turned white by the blood of the Lamb. And we're going to see them in the millennial kingdom. So that is Revelation chapter 6 and 7. I'm excited to get to the rest of it, and I'm glad we have these little parentheses of hope that God shows us that even in the midst of this chaos, he still reigns and people will still get saved and get to know him even when earth is at its worst. So let's pray. Father God, I am so thankful for who you are, I am so glad that I know you now. God, I, I do ask that you would help us to know you, to know your message, to know your word, and to know your character so well 
that we are unashamed to share it with those who need to hear it. Help us bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. Help us bring as many people with us to the throne room of heaven as we can before this disaster takes place. God, you tell us, you instructed Peter to tell us that it's not you delaying, it's you wanting to save as many as you can because it's not your will that any should perish. Help us to have that same heart. And we know that many people will take the wide road that leads to destruction. But don't let it be because we didn't tell them about it and tell them about you. Help us get as many people out of this chaos before it happens as possible. But God, I do thank you that you have a plan, even in the midst of this period of time, to bring people to you and to give them your presence and glory in the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.